The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. How's it going and welcome to episode 82 of On The Wire, a proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. Follow the pod on the Twitter at On The Wire Pod. Of course, if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, please take a second to let us know what you think. I am Adam Howe. You can follow me on the Twitter at 80 grade. That's all spelled out. And I am once again joined by my co-host, Kevin Hastings, who should be followed on the Twitter at Hasting Kevin. We're doing. We're just doing this weekly now. Kev, last off season, we took it easy, if you will. <laughs> we went every other week, and we're just going. We're going. Oh, we're uh, we're here every single week. We might have some bonus episodes scattered in there as well, as we head into 2023. But it honestly, it, it feels good to just be here on a consistent basis with you. How are you feeling about the flow that we got going? Oh yeah, it's amazing. It's it's what got me into, and I'm sure like many others, what got me into listening to fantasy baseball podcasts in the first place was this time of year and then later into the offseason when there weren't any or there there wasn't anything available. Sirius XM went to nothing but football it was beginning just, July it's just 1st. Straight line. Yep. Yeah. And when they <laughs> did that a few years ago, I started searching, man. I want to listen to people talking about baseball. And it's exploded over the past couple of years. And it's amazing that we can be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you have to search that much, you know what? Let's just talk about it ourselves, right? Exactly. <laughs> and if we really want, we can always just listen to ourselves over and over again. Who who does that? Anyway, we're going to be able to listen to somebody to help us out this week talking about a very specific uh, category. Last week, we had uh, Derek Rodon. We talked about some best balls. We're going to move on to one of the other early draft options, draft and holds. And in order to do that, we brought in a specialist, if you will. We're joined this week by our very special guest, Russell, more well-known as Armchair Roto, which is where you can follow him pretty much everywhere on the Twitter at Armchair Roto, on his website at www.armchairroto.com. You can find his analysis, his projections, his general fantasy insight there. Russell finished on the top of his Earth League in, Rus- in Kevin's Earth League as well, TARF, which is uh, he's also the commissioner of that chapter. Also finished fourth overall, one spot behind last week's guest, Derek Rhodes. We'll be focusing, like I said, most of our attention today on the draft and hold format draft champions, maybe a little talk like the NFBC 50s, any other draft and holds where you're drafting a team and you're not making moves except for changing your lineup throughout the season. No ads, no drops, etc. And Russell's no stranger to to the format. So it'd be great to pick his brain on that. But first, Russell, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. 
Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. As I've said many times on Twitter, this is the best weekly themed show there is. It's one of the shows I don't miss every week. It's part of my Sunday morning routine. My two oldest girls are both on swim team. So all summer, I'm at swim meets at 5 a.m. watching the sun come up while everything is getting ready, sitting there drinking my coffee and sitting there with my pods in listening to this show. The funny thing is I usually set my fab. I'm usually make my first fab run Saturday evening. And then I sit down Sunday morning, I wake up and I decide I'm going to change everything. And, <laughs> and I listen to this show and it helps me decide that instead of just tweaking everything, I'm just going to delete it all and redo it. So I actually won three of my five fab leagues last year. And the show was very helpful in doing that. So I'm really happy to be a part of things. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I think that process you just described is what won you all those leagues. Do all the work on Saturday and then delete all of it on Sunday and then start from scratch. I think that's yeah. a takeaway that most of our listeners should be taking away from that. Do more work than we, than anybody has recommended in the past and you come out successful. That's yeah, true. You wake up in the morning and you think, <laughs> the first thought is, I think that was all wrong. I need to redo that. I like the idea of setting your fab early in the week and then taking in whatever advice you want, whether it's written advice, like Kevin puts out his article on Sunday afternoons on Pitcher List. We talk about this, obviously, we record on Saturday evenings and put that out first thing Sunday morning. And if nothing else, not taking everything what we or anybody else says as fact, but more so looking at what you've already bid and comparing it to the things that we have to say or our guests have to say. So I actually really like the thought process, maybe not deleting everything completely, but maybe just the tweaks. Hey, but you know what? If it worked. It, <laughs> that's really what matters. All right, guys. As we talked about, we do have a couple pieces of news and notes every week to talk about. We don't go as overboard as we do during the season, and this will likely expand as we go along into the offseason. But for now, I've got two pieces I want to talk to you guys about and get your guys' takes on it. Kevin, we're going to start with the White Sox. Reportedly are expected to move in. Obviously, all these expectations are, a lot of it's hearsay, a lot of it is whatever. The playoffs aren't even over yet. But if it is, if you subscribe to the idea that they are expected to move on from Jose Abreu at first base, where do you expect or hope he lands to get the most fantasy relevancy? And where would you know, where would you be afraid he's actually going to land if he's not with the White Sox? I don't know about a specific landing spot. I do think that in spite of the managerial changes that, that the White Sox are going through and other things that, that maybe a change of scenery is going to be nice. Jose Abreu was third in all of baseball this season in hard contact percentage and had well over 600 plate appearances and hit 15 home runs. His home run per fly ball rate was half of his career average, but he was still smoking the baseball. And yeah, his ground ball percentage was over 50%. That's part of it, but it wasn't exceptionally higher than it has been in the past. I think a lot of this is just the White Sox as a team underperformed, and it's going to be nice to see him get out of there. I wonder that like I said, specifically, I try not to put too much thought into these types of things. I try to do more of a 
reaction than prediction when it comes to this and make my adjust adjustments when we know. But I wonder what somewhere like Houston, how long are they going to hang on to Yuli Gurriel in spite of him making contact recently and in the postseason, the power hasn't been there uh, like we saw a, a couple of years ago. Maybe somewhere that would be nice. I think Miami would be a possibility. That would be one of the places as far as ballpark goes that we would be a little less enthusiastic about. But for the most part, I think a change of scenery will be good in general. And I'll try just to react to the lineup and ballpark once we know. Yeah, it, I agree. As a general rule, reaction for these types of things is better than predicting. But when you are doing these early drafts, like we talked about last week, even with best balls or these uh, draft champions that are filling up, it's good to have a general sense of whether or not you're willing to pick this guy up late as your starting first baseman, or if he's going to drop so much where maybe he's he fits into your corner maybe he's fits in as your last chance at a utility at the in the ut spot on your lineup russell what i mean what are your thoughts here does this uncertainty impact whether or not you're targeting abreu in an early dc not at all i am hoping that the 15 home runs give a discount on him because the fact of the matter is his skill set is aging like a fine wine his strikeout rate of 16.2 was the best of his career his walk rates the last two seasons are the best of his career. His swinging strike rate last season was the best of his career. And as Kevin already mentioned, his hard hit metrics and his quality of contact are still off the charts. He's still a very good player. If he hits 15 home runs, if he's still hitting 300, that's extremely valuable. So I don't really see a, a world in which he is not worth where he's being drafted. So I definitely expect to have him on a few teams and as far as where he lands, Houston was also the first one that came to mind for me. Yuli is beloved in Houston, but he is 39, so it'll be interesting to see whether the team moves on from him or not. Some other possible landing spots, maybe San Diego. Josh Bell is going to be a free agent. San Francisco, Belt is gone. Maybe a short-term deal in Tampa something like that. But any of those places, he's going to be a valuable player. Yeah. One thing I'd like to add is I'd also be really interested if he lands somewhere where he is DH a lot of the time. I am a big fan of aging players. He'll be 36 years old for the 2023 season. I'm a big fan of these guys being in the designated hitter and eliminating the possible possibility of injury that does increase with eight. The other side of the coin here as well is considering the effect this might have on Andrew Vaughn and his playing time in Chicago without Tony La Russa there for one <laughs> and then with him assuming the heir apparent to the first base crown in Chicago the position in which he did come up as everybody probably remember he's not a left fielder <laughs> he just happens to be out there most of the time and he did lose first base eligibility going into 2023. He didn't play enough at the first base position last year. Expectation would be that he will jump right back in there and gain that eligibility after the first 10 games of 2023. So he should have the dual eligibility. 
you would assume he's going to be playing every single day, whether it's mixing in some DH spots, taking away from Eloy or just playing every day at first base. We'll see how that works out and where he ends up in that lineup. But it will be nice to know he'll still have that dual eligibility come the second week of the season. All right. Let's talk about Russell. You talked about Josh Bell. So we'll go with the Padres. That's the best segue that I could find here in this one. So they the Padres, they advanced, as we know, to the NLCS. And with that, Fernando Tatis Jr. will have at least four more games taking off his suspension. And as they split as of recording, they have split the series so that it'll probably end up being it'll be five games taken off his suspension, if not more, if the game if the series goes longer. He could be eligible to start the 2023 season in late April now. On the flip side, it's been reported that Tatis has completed a second surgery on his left wrist to sure up those issues. How do all of these variables impact your expectations for Tatis heading into these 2023 drafts? Gosh, I could talk about Tatis for a long time. <laughs> I might just completely ramble here for a minute. I haven't decided yet if I'm in or out on him. I've seen some early drafts where he's gone late in the second round. That seems like a pretty good place to, to take a shot. The suspension doesn't really concern me so much anymore. We're at the point now where it's going to be somewhere between f- 5 and 20 games. If that's the only issue, then that's not a problem because his sure. rate stats are such that he can destroy most players in while only playing a partial season. The concern for me is the labrum surgery and the wrist surgery. We just don't really quite know yet how he's going to perform when he comes back. He's one of those players who he's got a pretty crummy contact rate and he makes up for it by having insanely good quality of contact. And if his shoulder is ailing or his wrist is barking, one of those things is barking after the surgery and he's not able to make that quality of contact to make up for the lack of contact then maybe he doesn't produce the way he has in the past, at least from the jump. So there's a little bit of a concern about that. I'd like to see, does he get to participate in spring training? I'm not even sure about that, but I'd like to see how he's performing. From what I, when I read, yes, he gets to participate in spring training, but he won't be eligible to play in an actual game until, you know, the suspension is over. I'll say this. So when I did my projections, I took all of that into account and I gave him 450 plate appearances which is, I don't know, 65% of the season. That seems pretty conservative, but also fair to me. But the projection with that comes out to 32 home runs, 23 stolen bases with a 287 batting average, which still makes him a top 30 player. Easy. So if, if that's his floor and he actually is healthy and performs the way that he could, that's just a, that's a windfall in the second round. So I'm typically pretty risk averse, but I can see myself taking a shot if that's where he's going late second round. Yeah, in our uh, in our pitcherless two early mocks, 12, 12 teamers, head-to-head style draft, I grabbed Tatis at the end of the third round. So on the turn, on the 3-4 turn, and I thought that was a pretty good deal considering that, like you said, if that's the floor, he's not playing. I think it is your 450 that you mentioned is that's also building in random off days throughout the course of the season. That yes. suspension is not going like you mentioned. It, it might be as short as five games if the Padres really, continue to win. Yeah. He's never really had a fully healthy season. Sure. So that 450 is the suspension plus just the fact that he gets hurt a lot. <laughs> he does. And so we could see that affecting 
how many times he plays throughout the course of the week as well. Instead of going from a six to seven day a week player, if he goes down to a five to six game a week player, those daily move leagues, not going to make a difference. But in those DCs, that might be something to consider. Kevin, does that affect anything as you're targeting, whether you're targeting that outfield or shortstop position eligibility in your early drafts? Yeah, I'm still staying away. I stayed away all last draft season, and it was all about the shoulder at that time. Now we have wrist surgery on top of it. We have the suspension on top of it. We have a guy that has not played in Major League Baseball game since 2021, and we'll be in 2023. And as we'll get to here in just a little bit, I think his draft price is going to skyrocket. As long as we get any reports that his recovery from these surgeries are going well and he's healthy, people are going to look at the games being suspended to start the season due to this postseason run. They're going to look at 2021, 546 plate appearances and say, He's guaranteed that now because the suspension is so low, 42 home runs, 25 stolen bases, and they're going to say this is his floor and he's not going to be a mid-second to late second round pick as he has been in many of the draft champions that have already taken place. He's definitely not going to be a late third, even in 12-team leagues, and it's just not something I'm going to want to take on. One thing that that I have realized – over the past couple of seasons is when there's risks like this, a guy slipping to the end of the second round isn't enough of a discount for me. That's still your second pick. You still, and that's still your second pick out. And there there's already 25 to 28, depending on exactly where you are late in that second round guys off the board, you're getting two picks here and then you're not picking again for nearly 30 picks in a 15 team league. And so it's just too valuable of a spot to take a chance for me. Yeah, it seems as though this is the time where the risks tend to be pushback. Like you said, he's already going at the end of the second round now with expectations of him moving up into the early second, maybe even the first round, depending on how I think he'll be a first rounder if he's healthy in the spring. Yeah, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit further later on in the show. But I also wonder how much you balance that off with him, the hype going up with him and cold water being thrown on maybe two or three other guys that are currently going high as they get throughout the offseason and into spring training. But we'll get into that a little bit later in the show, I think. Right now, I think, guys, that's enough news to talk about here, to speculate on. We're going to get into our main discussion here of the episode that is taking a deeper dive into the draft and hold format, one that requires a little bit more hands-on approach in season than the best balls we talked about last week. But Maybe not as much as your standard fab leads, which is what we talked about on a regular basis here. Before we do that, though, we are going to take this quick break. All right, we are back. Of course, you are listening to On The Wire. I am Adam Howe, joined, as always, by Kevin Hastings. And this week, we have Russell Armchair Roto here with us to talk about some draft and hold formats. So, Russell, you play in, have you started any draft and hold drafts this season thus far? And if not, when do you typically start jumping into those? I have not done any yet, but I'm probably going to jump into one within the next week. I typically wait until I'm done with my projections because I like to run them through the old SGP-o-meter (laughs) <laughs> and, and then upload my rankings to NFBC so that I can use those and draft off that. 
Yeah, that's a great feature. I don't think enough people probably utilize is being able to actually import your own rankings into your draft board so that it shows up rather than having to, especially now when there is no ADP or the ADP that shows up is actually 2022 ADP <laughs> because they haven't flipped the site over yet, which is amazing. I haven't been in a draft room yet either, but I'm just picturing the confusion <laughs> everywhere for that. Like, why is the ADP for this guy here? So I think that's a, that's great shout out that you, you give that as if you have the ability to do that and you're getting these early drafts, you should be putting in your own rankings. If for nothing else, just as a reference point on the fly, if your pick comes up, you can just be like, all right, these are my rankings. You're able to flip through spreadsheets on the side or, or your scrap paper. If that's the way you roll, why don't you, I, I gave a very quick synopsis on this. Why do you like the format? I made, I'm, so I I made Derek last week sell me on best balls. You don't have to do as much. I, I play in plenty of draft and holds myself, but I'm going to lean on you a little bit to give our listeners more of a detailed synopsis of the format, why you enjoy the format, and uh, how many leagues do you plan on playing in last year? And how many did you play last year? And how many do you plan on playing this year? The reason I like the format so much is it it rewards deep preparation. So in my projections, I go nearly a thousand players deep, even players that I don't expect to contribute at all. I even look at every prospect that I think might contribute in, in some minor way. So even when you're giving those players 100 plate appearances, 150 plate appearances, 30 innings pitched, they pop up on the list somewhere when you map them all out. And that helps me identify the end gamers that I like to take. So it's a format that really rewards preparation. That's why I like Dynasty so much too. You get some deep minor league benches. I like formats that have tons of players that you can draft. I also like the format because it just requires no real in-season management other than setting your rosters twice a week, which is time-consuming, but it's not nearly as time-consuming as FAB or trading leagues, both of which I'm in too many already. As, As far as the number of leagues I play in, Last season, I played in 22 draft champions leagues. The year before that, I think it was 15. I think I'm going to drop it back down to 15. And I might do some of the NFBC 50s. The Basically, they're the same thing, but they're 12-team leagues. Sure. I may do three to five of those. But I definitely plan to do fewer this year than I did last year. Kevin, correct me or tell me if you do the same thing, but I think a lot of people see these as preparation for their other, their fab leagues, if you will. Their NFB 50s being preparation for your online championships, those 12 team or fab leagues, or your standard standalones if you're in a satellite league or, or in our listener leagues. Those are 12 teamers as well with fab. And then obviously the draft champions being a prep for the, like the main event or any of the other 15 teamers. I think that there's some pros and cons to doing that per se, because we talk, we'll have an episode later on in the season, we usually do, talking about the types of players that will move up in ADP in a fab league compared to where they end up going in a DC. So it's not apples to apples, but I think it's a pretty good, to echo what Russell said, a way to like really get to know the play, the deep player pool later in the draft. How much of that would you say is accurate for your own preparation as you get closer to doing fab leagues later on in draft season? I think it definitely helps. 750 players are getting drafted in, in, in FBC DC. So it definitely helps. You do have to go deeper into the player pool. For me, I think that is part of it. I definitely think there's more value to both 
these draft champions leagues and best balls as opposed to mock drafts. And I think that's what it has taken over for a lot of people. These both of these types of leagues have taken the place of mock drafts as far as draft prep goes for fab leagues or bigger leagues or higher stakes leagues or whatever people are getting ready for later in draft season. And, but for me, the number one reason drafting's fun and we can start <laughs> drafting in October. These are the leagues that are available right now. Right. Amen. There's a cut line. There's a cut line. The cut line is opened on NFBC. So if you're desperate for some fab, there is a fab element to that. Kind of the best of both worlds, right? With a little bit of fab and the best ball aspect, not setting your lineups. So that's something to consider, at least if that's the format that you're uh, interested in. If you literally just want to draft, as Kevin mentioned. Russell, you did 22 leagues last year. We're strictly talking about these draft champions. You might dabble in the 12 teamers. That's fine as well. But so you probably have a general strategy as to how you like to construct your roster. There's 50 rounds. You got to draft 50 players. You still have to start the same amount of standard lineups and the standard number of pitchers and all that. But you're still drafting 50 total. What kind of percentages are you looking at as far as how many pitchers do you like to draft? What's the logic behind the strategy you have? And has it did it work last year? Yeah, I'm pretty extreme on the pitcher-hitter split. I typically try to get to 24 pitchers and 26 hitters. I think, I think a lot of people go a little bit heavier on the hitters, 28 to 30. But what I do is I take a lot of hitters earlier, because you really want those regular players. I can elaborate on that more in a second. But I take I, I take more hitters earlier because they're more reliable when you get regulars with the plate appearances. As far as positions go, I try to get four catchers. I might cut that down to three this season. We'll see. But I'm thinking about that a little bit. And basically, I want three everyday players or at least strong side platoon players at every position. So three, fir- three first basemen, second basemen. All, all down the row, 10 outfielders, 15 starting pitchers, and then a whole bunch of relievers. The position players, the three, I like multi-position eligibility, but I only count the I only count them for one position. So I view the multi-position eligibility as a bonus. An alternate way that I've done it in the past is to get four players that are eligible at every position. So it's, it's a different way to get to the same ending. I just count them a little bit differently. Sure, that sounds a little bit more difficult, especially as the draft gets further along, just knowing that. Or, and also draft and holds and on the NFBC format, as we talked about last week, they will players can gain that eligibility as well throughout the season, as opposed to being locked into what you draft them at. Yeah, obviously, the any kind of flexibility you can give your lineup. But it's interesting, it is a good thing, but it's interesting that you talk about how that's you dedicate the a certain like DJ LeMahieu. He's either going to be a first, second, or third baseman for you going into last season. But it's interesting to see that, hey, it's a bonus that I'm he, I'm counting him as one of my second basemen. But it's nice to know that I have that flexibility to moving him into third or first if I have to. But he turns into your fifth first baseman just because you've got the other guy, the other guys at the position. I, I love that you mentioned that you have a whole bunch of relievers in this kind of a format. And I think Kevin and I talk about this quite a bit. And just in general, like they're undervalued as a whole in fantasy baseball on most formats, especially your deeper formats. Do you find yourself filling out the last 
couple spots of our pitcher slots that you've made yourself with relievers or are you picking them up early how are you deciding when to draft all those relief pitchers yeah i last season i was taking two two really good closers usually one elite closer and then one pretty good closer but aside from that i typically take most of my relievers in the final 10 rounds when you get to round 40 there are certain types of players that are still available. There's only a certain type of player that is still valuable that is still available. <laughs> so key. a lot of times I'll take a fourth catcher that's a dart throw in the in, in round 40 plus. But there are tons of really good relievers that are still available at that time. For example, last season I was taking Alex Vesia on a whole lot of teams. And he was a guy that you can just, you don't like your matchups one week, you can just plug him in, and he's a pretty good reliever that you can plug in. I think he even got a save or two It's a couple points of the season. The year before that, I was taking Dylan Floro in the late rounds on a lot of them, and he ended up closing a whole bunch of games. So, you know, you're drafting these guys as reliable plug-ins, but they have the added benefit of something happening, maybe an injury or something, and they move into a much more valuable role. Kevin, when you are putting together the rosters for these types of leagues, especially these 50 rounders and these 15 teamers, these draft champions, as we're talking about, do you have a more of a set idea of how you're going to construct your rosters or do you take what the draft board gives you? No, I think you got to have a pretty good outline of what you want to end up with position wise, because once the draft's over, you can't change it uh, unless they gain eligibility like you brought up. And and so I think that's absolutely necessary. It's funny. I have, I did toy with the only three catchers on a a couple of teams last season that Russell just brought up, worked out in one, didn't work out so well in another with the thought being it, are you going to play your fourth catcher anyway? We see at the end of the season, you'll see a lot of people posting on Twitter that they're leaving injured catchers in in their lineup intentionally, <laughs> taking healthy guys out, putting injured guys in, protect their ratios. So why even have that fourth guy? And it worked out in one spot, didn't the other. I think it can, depending on health, of course, is always going to come up. But and the other things, uh, depends on who they are, right? So I like that idea. And yes, Relief pitchers love good setup guys. And it's something that we can, and we could do an an entire episode or two on this, on projecting who, because they change every year. The reliever, relievers in baseball in general are so volatile that it's a spot where these guys have value, even if they're not getting saves, they have value, even if they're not getting wins. When you find a guy that is getting a handful of both of them, they're extremely valuable. I heard Ariel Cohen on his podcast this week bringing up how how valuable some of these middle relievers are earning double-digit auction dollars on the season in 5 by 5 Roto and didn't have saves or wins. Just those couple to a handful that they add up, but with their ratios, with their strikeouts, how valuable they actually are. Yeah, I agree 100% with Russell here. I think the rub on this, I think probably the mentality that people have is that where those who are not taking advantage of the, drafting these types of players is you don't know when you're going to put them in your lineup, especially in this kind of a format, right? They're mostly going to be on your bench. And Russell, as you mentioned, you're going to throw them into your lineup when you either don't like your matchups, if enough of your starters are injured or they're not performing or whatever. 
Um, or if so, you were grabbing Dallas Keuchel late in all your drafts last season, like then, somebody here might yeah, have. Yeah, I don't know. If that happens to be the case, then maybe they make their way into your lineup a little bit more often. But in general, there you never know when you're going to get lucky enough. Russell, you mentioned Vessia. And yeah, I had him in a bunch of DCs as well, just because that was a... D- late dart throw that he might actually move into a more substantial role to get saves. And he, like you said, he got a couple saves, but how many of those saves actually ended up on your roster because you got lucky enough. That was the week that you put him into your lineup. The way I think I value them a little bit more is they're not, these are guys that aren't going to hurt you. And if you're afraid that a starter with a matchup is going to hurt you, then at least put a guy in knowing that you might not get anything out of it, but you're not, you're not going to get a zero and you're not going to take the L either, more than likely, especially if you got a, you got a couple of those relievers that are on a nice little streak. As Kevin mentioned, these guys do tend to change year in and yeah. year out unless they move into a more prominent role because of how well they did. It's not a guarantee that that seventh, eighth inning guy that did so good last year is going to continue to do that in the following year. So. Yeah, absolutely. Evan Phillips comes to mind. As good as he's looked, if he doesn't move into the closer role for the Dodgers next year, there's no guarantee that he will provide the same kind of value that he might have this year. Russell, when you're when you jump into this DC that you're talking about probably next week or maybe by the end of the month, you're going to be looking at you said you tend to look at hitters early so you can get the more guaranteed playing time and not take as much risk, if you will. So maybe your Tatis is not going to be the risk you take in the first round. Maybe it will be, but maybe you go somewhere else. But about when in the draft do you actually start stretching, if you will, for that kind of upside, if ever, or do you support the idea that Draft and holds are all about guaranteed playing time, guaranteed production. I'm not not stashing and all that. Yeah, this is a really this is a really great question and a really interesting point of conversation. When you project all these players and you drop them into a, an SGP calculator and auto rank them based on 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 their values, what I have found the last couple of seasons is that you can draft off the projections only for so long. At a certain point, players project for negative value. And that typically happens around pick 450 to 500. And so you start moving into this territory where you're not really, you're not really drafting players because those are the stats that you want. You're drafting players because they have more potential than what the projections show. You get to a point where prospects start to play into the mix where maybe you project a player to only have 120 plate appearances, but if they come up in May and they hit and they pop, all of a sudden they've got 500 plate appearances if they're Michael and, it's a, and it's a windfall. And that's where that can happen. So it's this point where you stop looking for what the projections tell you to expect and you're looking more for the potential of what's there. Right, that's fair. So it sounds as though you're more likely to make those kind of stashes or those those risks, if you will, later, like you said, around the four to five hundred mark, rather than push a guy like last year, push Bobby Witt up from pick eighty five to sixty five, like those incremental like one or two rounds early in the draft, not so much to get your guy. Rather take the more guaranteed the less risk, especially in these first 10 to 15 rounds and wait 
until you get to that point. Kevin, do you, first of all, Russell, correct me if I got that, if I analyzed that. That's spot on. I had zero Bobby Witt, but I did have 11 shares of Spencer Strider, which I'm guessing I had more draft champions shares than anyone. He was only drafted in 75% of those leagues. And I had projected him as a reliever for about 65 innings. And he projected out with 100 strikeouts. He projected as an elite reliever and no one was taking him. And I was drafting him in November. So yeah, I had zero Bobby Witt and a whole bunch of him. And it's, it's, there are a whole bunch of prospects like that don't have to do much to provide a little bit of value but could really pop and give you a windfall. But I typically don't pay up for the Bobby Witts of the world that are being drafted really early. And admittedly, I missed on that because those were great picks. The str- Obviously, the Strider one worked out quite well. A little bit more than 100 of those strikeouts, as you projected them out to have. But the thing is that his rule never changed in the offseason. Nothing changed about Spencer Strider from November to March. And so his ADP, I don't have it in front of me, but I do know it did not really fluctuate between those drafts, as I'm just looking at a snapshot of guys who did fluctuate their ADP between those two sets of drafts, and he's not on that list. So I've got a list of guys that fluctuated within 24 picks of ADP between October, November, and February and March drafts. And yeah, he's not one of those players. So it is interesting to know that these are these. there's still plenty of good players that you can get early or in early drafts late that end up making a change in April after all the drafts are completed. Man, it's not really going to affect their value as you're as you move along in draft season. Kevin, we talk about the stash all the time. Like it, are you still completely adverse to the stash in these kind of formats? Is it all about playing time or obviously everybody has a point a price point if you will or a draft capital point that you're willing to take those kind of pushes on? I agree once again with Russell. The later it gets the the more likely I am to take that risk. I think I think these guys are going to be even more overvalued than they typically are and they have been. Everybody likes the shiny prospects. They have been for years, but we saw so many many. of them in 2022 and so many of them perform so well. We're seeing Julio Rodriguez go number one overall in some of these drafts, more than one of these drafts that are taking place. He's the number one overall pick. And you mentioned Bobby Witt, and we saw how good Adley Rutschman was when he came. The list just goes on and on. And every time we would talk on the show, okay, this is our last chance to spend a lot of fab money. Are we spending it here? We were wrong. The next week, there was a couple more guys, right? (laughs) All season long in 2022, these guys were coming up and performing. And I think that's going to push them up even further than they have been in the past especially those going inside the top 400 picks or so are going to be pushed up even further than usual, I think. And I don't, I'm not looking at this as a trend. I know there's the things with the rules with if they finish certain spots in rookie of the year voting, the teams can get draft picks, but I think 2022 was a big outlier and we're going to regress back to the number and the performance we get from them on some of these players. And I just think in general, these types of guys are going to be pushed way further up even than they typically have been for 2023. Well, I think the other big variable here is that 
we already got a preview of most of those players that are going to be on opening day rosters. The Corbin Carrolls, the Gunnar Hendersons. Like We know these guys who got called up at the very end of 2022 just to get their cup of coffee, but not enough to make them ineligible for rookie of the year voting in 2023. It's pretty obvious that these players have already started their clock. They'd have to be held down for quite a long time at the start of the season in order to get that extra year of eligibility. These teams want that extra draft pick. They want the Orioles want Gunnar Henderson to compete for the AL Rookie of the Year. Arizona wants Corbin Carroll to win the NL Rookie of the Year. That's why they're there. So we already know the big players, the big names. We had an idea last year that Bobby, you know, we we were confident enough to draft them in the sixth round in some cases that Bobby Witt was going to start. But many of us were not confident that Julio Rodriguez was going to start the season after not playing in triple a and obviously he surprised everybody there in that realm so some people got some really good discounts if they were jumping on him early as in those risk situations that we're talking about the other thing about taking those risks later in the draft that you guys are talking about that also especially in these rosters it depends on how much risk you took early on if you did take that risk early on it doesn't make the risky picks late oh still a good idea like there's only so much risk in my mind that you should be taking on. So like I, I feel like I took probably a little bit more risk in the middle of my draft and holds than I probably will next year. But so when I did do that, I was less likely to pick up those guys later in drafts. I was going after the Elvis Andrews of the world that are still going in the at the end of drafts just because I knew the playing time was going to be there. And it's a lot easier to find the guaranteed playing time in the middle of the draft than it is in the bottom 10 rounds, as you said, after pick 40. It was a great pick last year. Though. Yeah, at the end of the year, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I was putting him in my lineup, so it worked out. That's what's so great about draft champions, though. Elvis Andrews will sit on your bench all season, and then in September, he's Mickey Mantle all of a yeah. sudden. What a great pickup. <laughs> the epitome of just need a new location, right? I just need this change of scenery. And so that worked out nicely. All right. I think that's good. It's a lot to think about. It, it is definitely a different format to consider if your standard format is just your standard head to head, your standard Roto Fab Leagues. There's a lot of other features or strategy that goes into drafting these draft and holds. And I think Kevin and I talked about this in the past, but I'll echo again. We've talked about it here, but playing time is key. Playing time is you got to know that since you're not able to make these changes, injuries are going to happen. Sure. But if there's a chance that if your player, the players are going to miss time for any other reason besides injury, that's something that you need to highly consider and highly weight as you're whether it's looking at young rookies, guys with that don't have guaranteed roles to start the season. These are things that could fluctuate or even aging guys that have really big stars or prospects pushing the envelope and with the possibility of pushing them out of a job. So. All things that need to be considered when you are making your rankings in this kind of a format because you're stuck with them. You're stuck with them all season and there's nothing you can do about it except put them on your bench. But then you got to fill that spot with someone else. So let's talk about some of those players that you may be drafting or you might be targeting guys in these early drafts. And what I'm curious to know is the type of players that you'd be targeting now that you expect to, you expect them to move up in ADP come February or even January as draft season moves along, whether it be because they sign with a new team and get some extra buzz. Maybe they are a prospect that is more of a guarantee that they're going to start on the opening day roster, 
or if they just get extra buzz around the industry as you search on Twitter for different things and you're listening to other podcasts and more and more people start talking about the same players. Jeremy Pena comes to mind as the season, as the offseason went along last year. And I was looking through, as I mentioned, there was there, there didn't seem to be like a very specific type of player that changed ADP last year. Compare when you compare draft champions drafts that happened in October and November of 2021, and then going comparing those to the ADP that was collected from the drafts that happened in March, in February, and then even early April last year. And there wasn't like a very specific type of player. Yeah, there were a couple players that were like obviously injured. They are an injury. Josh Young. Obviously, he dropped the most in ADP for obvious reasons. And then, but then you have starters, you have relievers, you have middle infielders moving all over the place. So I'm very curious to see the kind of players that you guys end up going with in this exercise and the kind of guys that, again, you think that you can get really good value on now in these early drafts that you maybe, whether or not you're willing to pay for it later on is completely different thing but knowing that you can get them later now than you could later on those are the type of players that i'm curious to know where you guys are looking at russell kevin i want each of you guys to think of two different positional players and two different pitchers that we can we can discuss here and get each other's takes on and the direction in which you think we're going with this russell i'm gonna start with you we're gonna start with positional we'll go through all the positional players and then we'll move on to the pitchers and this is a pitcherless podcast so we'll save the best for last if you will russell will go who's the first kind of positional player that came to mind whether it's based on your projections or just based on where you're seeing him go in some very early drafts or whatever the reason the first player I picked was Shea Lang, catcher for the Oakland Athletics. Prospects with high pedigree. He came up in August last season and across August and September played a lot, got 150 plate appearances. And there are a few reasons why I think he is going to move up throughout the offseason. One is that he is not catcher eligible. So he's going to be DH only. And when people are in the draft room sorting by position, he's not going to be there when they're looking for catchers. So I think that is going to allow him to slip at least a few rounds. But then also there's a lot of talk of the A's trading Sean Murphy. And I think Langoliers is set up for pretty good playing time no matter what. But if they trade Murphy and he's the starter at catcher, then all of a sudden he's in a full-time role, no doubt. And he'll move up quite a bit. Yeah, we saw him when he called up. He was playing pretty much every day. And as you mentioned, not enough at catcher to keep the eligibility, but still enough where he literally was playing every single day, at least six days out of seven in any given week. So I think that's a really good call out. Yeah, there's always these secret catchers, if you will, at the end of drafts. I think uh, Mathis comes to mind last year. Sam Huff wasn't eligible at catcher during draft season. And so every once in a while, you get to that point. I remember being in a draft last year and these guys started going like back to back and somebody in the chat was just like, oh, it's about that point of the draft where all the secret catchers start getting draft picked up. Langoliers definitely will fit into that category. And I can totally see this is the type of player who moves based on news. It's a reactionary pick that Kevin, that you were talking about. As things happen, it adjusts the value of players through no fault of their own, <laughs> good or bad. No injury, no this, no surprises. It's just, hey, there's an opportunity now where there wasn't one before, or at least not as clear as there was before. No guarantee, 
But I think that's a good insight to think about when you're looking at these type of positions. Kevin, who's your the kind of first positional player that uh, comes to your mind? I mentioned earlier that that he was going to come up again, and once again, I'm not I'm not in at even the current price. But I think Fernando Tatis Jr. will be a first round draft pick if healthy in February and March. I really do. But as far as guys I am interested in, I'd like a couple of teammates for the Texas Rangers. I think Adelis Garcia is going to move up throughout draft season. I know the concerns with the hit tool and with his plate discipline, but people are just going to look at 25-25 and he's going to move up. I am definitely interested in, in the late fourth, fifth or sixth round where he's been going so far. And I think I will continue to be interested as he moves up, at least for a little while. And teammate Corey Seager, I am not one that thinks his batting average is going up much due to the banding the shift. I think that aspect of the new rules changes is going to be overblown. However, the Rangers didn't go out and spend money on these guys to remain horrible for very long, right? So with Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon signings last season, uh, Adelise Garcia, we saw some of their young guys have success, Baba Thompson. Uh, they're going to continue to add to this lineup, and I think the lineup in general is going to score runs. So both of these guys are very interesting to me. Uh, and as far as Seager goes, over 30 home runs, and he's the type of guy with his – Three or four stolen bases might become seven or eight with the rules changes, right? Take advantage of an extra mm-hmm. opportunity here. The, both of these guys with the Rangers, uh, and it really has a lot to do with, I think, the lineup in general is going to contribute to more runs, more RBIs, and them just being able to continue what they've done. Yeah, I think the uh, strategy of not being bad after you spent a lot of money on these players, that mentality should be, you should tell the angels that because apparently (laughs) they haven't gotten the memo. That's you're supposed to be getting better when you spend a bunch of money on a couple players. As far as I, I think what's interesting is you picked Garcia, who's going, like you said, in these early drafts within the top six six rounds. And it's a value in which you are willing to jump on board. And if you are confident that a guy like Garcia, who... We went. We had these same conversations with, about him going into last season, right? He put up all these counting stats, but like he can't hit the ball. But he still finds a way to put in these. So is he going to do it again? You know what? He did it again, and then so. And so you can only have that conversation so many times. So I wonder if you say later on, as his price starts going earlier and earlier in drafts, as more the industry starts talking about him more, we have these conversations. You're willing to jump up a little bit more. What stops you from and I what stops you from just setting that price because where you feel as though this is where he needs to be going? Is it strictly just I know I don't have to or do you risk that the market moving before you have a chance to do it and then missing out on the exposure that you're looking at? It's that's really tough. This is where I would like to think that I would put in the time to do something like what Zach Waxman does and and keep track of the guys I'm drafting against and who they're picking and when, so that when you have to make this jump. But I think even without going to that much detail of it, a lot of the early drafts and as you progress, you're going to see some of the same players in these drafts, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of the same people that like 
drafting multiple leagues early in draft season. So you have an idea, but yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. It's something that you have to have a feel for who you're drafting against. Know when you need to take them earlier. Not going to take someone that I would be willing to take two rounds earlier, but if I am confident I don't have to, then I'm missing out on somebody by doing that. So there's no reason. I And it's not, I think of a backwards, right? It's not that I'm taking him two rounds too early. It's who could I have gotten instead of who I'm going to end up taking two rounds later? Who could I gotten instead of that player? That's the way I think of it. Sure. It's like pushing up all those risk type players in the first three rounds and realizing Oh, obviously what happened with Whit Merrifield this year is a good example because if you drafted Whit Merrifield in the second or third round, which a lot of people did, you missed out on Garcia. Hi, Russell. I see you over there in the corner raising your hand on that one. Russell, let's see. The last positional player that that comes to mind in this scenario that you expect to have to pay up more later on in draft season than you would have to if you joined uh, DC right now. I don't know if y'all noticed last night, but I misread this question on the rundown and I had written Whit Merrifield in. Because I was just going to just speak negatively about him. But but then when I reread it, when I put the pictures in, I picked Manny Margot. So I tried to not fall in love with players and get emotional about players. But I have loved Manny Margot really from the start in San Diego. And it has never worked out. No, no. I'll have at least one of those players. Yeah, I just, I can't quit him. He's not even an average hitter. But... He's got a good power-speed combo. He's never really been very expensive in drafts. The problem is he's never stayed healthy for the full season, or he's been a platoon player, hasn't played every day. But he's a free agent now. This is the year. He's going to be on the open market. Somebody's going to sign him. He's going to be an everyday player. He's going to hit 240 and go 15-15 and provide a nice profit in later rounds in drafts. So I think his ADP will move up after he signs, and that becomes, I think it's I think it's apparent now, but when it becomes unassailable after he signed with the team, I think he'll move up in drafts. I see Margot. I think this is a great call because I see Margot is at his first, this is his first free agency, but as you mentioned, he's never had the opportunity whether it's through injury or through platooning or through whatever, to play to his top capability. So I see him as being the type of player that will go out and get a one, maybe a two-year deal in a situation in which he can get some kind of guarantee that he will be a starter or a regular player. So he has the opportunity to build up his stock for the next free agency and he can get a more long-term deal. Teams will be a little bit more confident about shelling out that kind of money. So I can see him doing that kind of like on the pitching side, the way I looked at Carlos Rodon signing his one-year deal or even Robbie Ray signing his one-year deal with Toronto and building that up so he could get that longer-term deal elsewhere. Positional players can do that as well. And I can see Margot being that kind of situation. If that happens, you're absolutely right. If he goes into, a, if he signs in an area or with the team that will give him an opportunity to play every day, then the only thing in his way then is going to be those injuries, which will always be looming. It's not gonna, this isn't going to move him into the third round or something crazy, but it will. it's one less variable that you probably have to worry about. The thing that's great about the Margot pick is even if Russell is wrong, 
he's still going to have value for his team at, at points throughout the season. Around, I would expect him to have a, a, a short IL stint or two. But around those, even if he's wrong about him no longer being a platoon player, he is going to play a good amount of time and still contribute and be useful in certain weeks as injuries start to come about for other outfielders. So that that's what's great, that a, a player like this, you can be wrong and there's still value. A value there, yeah. Yeah, maybe he ends up being an out, a fourth outfielder on your team and not so much the second outfielder that he could be if he is in that situation. But you still need a fourth and a fifth outfielder, right? <laughs> and maybe he gets moved around in your lineup a little bit more often than you were hoping, like Kevin said. You're still going to get value out of that. All right, let's talk about some pitchers here. Kevin, we'll start you off here. As you made an adjustment to the rundown, I appreciate that. And you actually <laughs> picked an actual pitcher here. Who's your first one that you think is going to gain some more traction as the offseason moves on? Yeah, my first one is Zach Gallen. So far, it seems like he's going mid to late fourth round and even later in these draft champions leagues that we've seen start to take place. And I really think he is going to move up as we'll see starting pitching move up throughout draft season. We always do. Everybody goes up a little bit, but I see him leapfrogging some of the starting pitchers that right now are going ahead of him with the only concern, I think, with Zach Gallen is that he pitches for Arizona for the Diamondbacks. And that leads to concerns with, okay, how many wins is he going to get? But we saw just how good he can be. And right now he's not going much earlier than he did last draft season when we still had injury concerns with him, which he totally left behind throughout this season. And I see him moving up into that, you know, second third tier of starting pitchers that we start to see go off the board in the at the two three turn that area for guys starting out the draft with an early pick in the first round going hitter and then lots of times they're grabbing one of who they think can still be an ace see him moving up into to that area of the draft and being one of the top guys in that second or third tier of starting pitchers definitely right now he's gone in the fifth round in a couple of these drafts most definitely i would love to have him in that spot but i think he's going to move up yeah it's interesting the type of players kevin that you're mentioning definitely are in those top six seven rounds and they're going to continue to stay there pending some kind of strange injury that happens or, or something like that and i think it's worth noting that all right so on my list that i put together almost all of these major changes happen from pick i think 450 and onward. There's the biggest kind of jumps as people start keying in onto the types of players that they want and they move them up in the, the bottom half of these draft champion leagues. But the value of bumping somebody up from the sixth round to the fourth round or even the sixth to the fifth round is a lot different. <laughs> it's a lot bigger of a value, even though the amount of picks or the amount of rounds difference isn't as vast. Just because, as you mentioned, Kevin, I'm going to echo what you said earlier. You're missing out. If you have to push somebody up into the fifth round, then you're missing somebody else that's also worth that fifth round pick. As opposed to if you are in the 35th round and you have you feel like you have to reach for somebody there, who else are you missing out on at that stage of the draft? It's like 
are, you still have a good chance of picking them the next round. You can push them down. So just when you're looking, if you're considering the fact that the differences that you can get later on in the drafts may be bigger, know that the the value of those changes early on in the drafts can be just as valuable with a smaller jump. So with that being said as well, Russell, do you have a that's going earlier on or somebody that might be going a little bit later on currently that you expect to make a bigger jump? I don't know where he's going but I think David Peterson is going to jump a pretty good amount between now and the start of the season. I don't know if everyone realizes this, but the Mets rotation has a lot of work that needs to be done to it this winter. That is an evergreen DeGrom, comment. DeGrom, Walker, and yeah, Bassett sure. all have options. So who knows what happens there? Scherzer's really the only sure thing. Uh, and his health is never 100%. So I have to think that there's going to be room for Peterson in the rotation. And he was in and out of the rotation this season. He was pretty good, whether he was in relief or starting. If in March it becomes clear that he will begin the season in the rotation, then all of a sudden people are going to pay up a lot more than they are now. Yeah, it's like Tyler. It's what happened with Tyler McGill last year. It wasn't announced that he was going to make that rotation spot until like spring training, I believe. And so that actually, or late in spring training even. And so we saw that with, on the prospect side, Matt Brash in Seattle. that'll be the last we have to talk about him. Don't worry. But that value, when you get that notification that so-and-so has made a rotation, absolutely, that that jumps him up. And yeah, we I don't know where he's going either, but I can guarantee you Peterson's not going in the first six rounds of these current runs. As those, if you go find on the NFBC message boards, as Kevin pointed out to me, there's a whole list of all, a whole bunch of DCs that have uh, the first six rounds mapped out. So you can make your own ADP, if at least in the first portion of those drafts. Pearson's not on that list. <laughs> right. Not to say he will jump into the sixth round, even if he gets that rotation spot. But it is nice to know, nice to see these kind of players that you can get later on in these drafts that may very well move up multiple rounds due to very specific information that comes out. Kevin, who's your who's your second pitcher that you've got here on the list that you think could jump up? Oh, I think he's definitely going to jump up as as we get into spring training and, and see that he is still healthy, that we did get to see at the end of the season. That's Tyler Glass now. He got those last two outings of the season for Tampa prior to the postseason and combined six and two-thirds innings, 10 strikeouts, four hits, couple of walks, one earned run. That was a solo home run. And that combined, that that's what we think we're going to see per outing from Tyler Glass now. And as we see th- that he is healthy and it's great to see him out there, that gives us a little bit of confidence going forward. As soon as we see him out there in spring training with no ill effects, I think he's going to move up to being one of the top 15 starting pitchers drafted. Yeah, I like that call out. I think that's the whole injury aspect or the mentality that people have and not knowing whether or not somebody's as healthy as they may have appeared. Of course, that will play a big part of it. We got one more pitcher on here, Russell, and I'm disappointed that none of you guys picked any relievers after all the talk about relievers that we talked about earlier in the show. Because they don't move up. And that's what's great. They don't move up. We can get them when we want them. That's amazing. That's fair. That's probably fair. I think the biggest I think the biggest bullpen situation I, I'd be looking at is actually the Dodgers bullpen situation. And I don't think it is a given whatsoever that Evan Phillips is the heir apparent to that closer situation. If assuming Kimbrough doesn't even have the job right now, never mind next season. So just something to consider, all those options. There's a lot of different options in that bullpen that they could go with if they don't end up going elsewhere. So 
just some targets they'll be looking at that I think will be moving around draft boards. And at least one or two of them will definitely move up as we get more news throughout the course of this offseason. Russell, I'm going to finish here with your last pitcher to consider later in drafts that you think you're going to be paying up more so in March. Since we're already talking about the Dodgers, this is not, I don't know if this is necessarily a player that I think is going to move up later in drafts, but this is the kind of player that I was talking about earlier that I like to target really late as a dart throw. And unless the prospect hounds drive up his draft price too early, if I can get him in the in the 45th round or later, I am looking at Dodgers pitcher Gavin Stone. He has a lot of the minor league track record that jumped out to me when I was looking at Spencer Strider last winter. He crossed three levels, and he was absolutely elite every step of the way. Just elite strikeout rates, elite swinging strike rates, just absolute nails. And he has nothing else to prove in the minor leagues. There is the case of Dodgeritis. Uh, who knows how he's actually going to be used? But he will come up at some point next season. And if you draft Gavin Stone as though he's a reliever that you expect, 70 to 80 innings out of maybe he pitches some long games maybe he gets a chance to start that's the kind of pick that will probably pay for itself if it's late enough but could really be a windfall if he gets a bigger role and he's been groomed as a starter so long term that is what he's going to be no matter what happens this season yeah there's a lot of openings in that rotation for the Dodgers. Kershaw's technically a free agent. Anderson's a free agent. So there's definitely going to be a Heaney's a free agent. So there could be lots of opportunities there if the Dodgers make different decisions on how to spend their money. So I like that call out. And you also, I've been planned on doing an episode next week where we, we talk about who, what is next year's and then insert player name here. So you just stole the Spencer Strider one because that'll obviously <laughs> be one that we need to, uh, to, to predict. So I like the call out there, but it's really smart. Like you mentioned, looking for that guy who is putting up those really strong middle reliever numbers, all that, and then all you have to do is add volume to that. And yes, it's dangerous to predict, especially with hitters. You can't say he put up these kind of numbers with 100 at-bats. Imagine what he can do with 500 at-bats. But pitchers, especially in a reliever to a starter, obviously those, those metrics will change. But if you have a strong middle relief, guys are going multiple innings in, in, in outings, on top of that being groomed to be a starters anyway. The only issue is with the Dodgers. It's like you have the Dodgeritis. You don't know what they're going to do with any one pitcher, when they're going to let them go, when they're going to baby them throughout the course of the season. But in a Roto League, you just as long as you get the volume, doesn't matter if you get them in one game or over the course of three games, it's all going to add up. So I link that as a name that everybody should be jotting down for sure. All right, guys, there's a lot of good players there to consider as drafts continue, especially on the NFBC platform in these DCs. And then when the 50s start going up, we'll get even more data. We'll start, we'll have an ADP episode later on in the offseason once that data actually comes through. For now, you can do some legwork and you can find at least the first portion of drafts ADP by collecting all the data yourself, if that's what you're into, and make your adjustments based on that. But Kevin, any any extra words of wisdom for our listeners as maybe they can start considering going into one of these drafts or they're just continuously prepping for any future drafts? Yeah, something I've found really intriguing, and I brought this up to you a week or so ago off the air, 
came up throughout this season a couple of times. And it's really intriguing now to me to look how the schedule is going to affect what we think of Colorado Rockies. And when we started bringing it up this past season in 2022, I had noticed that the schedule was very favorable to us. They were either at home or on the road for a week at a time. It made it really easy. That is not the case in 2023. And looking ahead, it is week nine of the fantasy baseball season before they are home for the entire week. So if you're in weekly league lineup formats, I'm staying away. You get three out of six weeks of, of all home games once you get to that week nine and then another six weeks without one. The positive here is a lot of leagues that are still weekly lineup leagues, I believe, are prob- probably leagues that have trading of some sort. And four of the final seven weeks of the season, the Rockies are at home the entire week. Yeah, go out and get them in early August. That that stretch begins August 14th. As far as NFBC goes and these draft champions leagues, this is where this gets really intriguing to me. They, You get 78 of their 81 home games in an NFBC format where you can only play them when they're all at home for the half of a week because the the way this schedule works, you don't have to play them on the road at all to get 78 of their home starts. Now that's intriguing to me, but on your 50 man roster, you have to account for this. They're going to be in and out of your lineup. So it's intriguing and something you got to take into account. Of course, in daily, you can move them in and out as you want. Formats matter here, but I think my main takeaway is that in weekly lineup leagues, I'm avoiding Colorado Rockies altogether. At least until the trade deadline. Yep. <laughs> yeah, interesting to think about these decisions, all the different variables, all the different decisions you have to make when you're considering one or two or three different players throughout your course of your draft. And this is a pretty pretty strong tiebreaker when it comes down to looking at the kind of player that you might be targeting at a different at a certain time throughout your draft, whether you're waiting on a CJ Crone at first base or, or looking at one of their outfielders or even considering one of their younger guys. We know how Colorado does with the younger guys. So maybe that's not a concern. And the other, I'll, I'm going to tack onto that. What I said to you as well is something to consider is in a head-to-head league, looking at team schedules in September and knowing how many plate appearances you can get from your best players based on the amount of games that they're going to be playing. These are guys you're going to play no matter what. So if they've got only five games, they're still going to help you because they're good players, but you're not getting as much out of them as you could have if you had considered that in advance. So Looking at the schedule in general, I think, is something that uh, should be done, especially even in these kind of formats that we're talking about today where you don't you can't even pick up more guys. I think a lot of people look at these schedules early on in fab leagues because you have that first fab run at the beginning of the year or the second fab run of the year that you can just pick up a guy to stream basically for week one or week two and then drop them if nothing happens. But you have to consider that for your draft champions and your other draft and hold formats as well. All right, guys, I think that's going to wrap it up. Russell, thank you, man, so much for taking the time to join us. Can you remind everybody listening where they can find the work that you do, how they can possibly even help you with your projections that you just finished up your first draft of this week from what I read on your tweet and anything else you might be working on in the offseason? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Armchair Roto, and the website is armchairroto.com. 
I'll probably post the first round of projections this weekend. So maybe it'll be up by the time this podcast gets posted. I have a bunch of other articles in the works this off season. I'm going to kick it off with what I did last year, which is the option pick'em, which I think Kevin played last year and almost won. It's a it's a just a Google sheet I put together where you go through all the team options and player options and pick who's going to have their options picked up or not. And I think I gave the winner last year a free coffee cup or something like that. So I'll, I'll do that again. That'll be right after the playoffs. Other than that, just look for tweets, look for new work. And look for Russell in your draft rooms as well, especially if you're doing any DCs or jumping in those 50s. I'll be honest, I am definitely the stalker of the contest sign-up portion on the NFBC. Instead of just picking the league I want, I'm definitely looking to see who's going to be in the room first. And if they're... I won't say like what rooms I'm targeting, whether I'm targeting rooms where people I do know or don't know. You guys can figure that out on your own. But I do love that feature that you know ahead of time who's going to be in those rooms. So look for uh, look for Russell in some of those early DCs. And as soon as Kevin and I jump in some of those, you'll know about it for sure. And that is going to wrap it up for episode 82 of On The Wire. We will be back weekly with shows throughout the off season maybe a couple bonus episodes here scattered in there as well so make sure you're subscribing you're sharing you're reviewing the podcast wherever you're listening you can follow myself on the twitter at 80 grade that's all spelled out kevin is at hasting kevin of course follow the pod itself at on the wire pod like once again thank our special guest russell or armchair roto for joining us of course you can follow him at armchair roto And after all that, I am Adam Howe. On behalf of Kevin Hastings, thanks for listening. We bid you goodbye.